Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The COVID-19 pandemic has made the relationship among research, policy, and public health strikingly clear. People who may have given little thought to health policy and research began following the latest study results to guide their own behavior and to push governments and businesses to make decisions that reflect a combination of science and their own values and risk tolerance. Health journals, like Health Affairs, responded with rapid processes and free content to meet growing consumer demand. The new environment had an effect on health services researchers as well, with a new emphasis on timeliness and attention to issues affecting the public. And it's in this context that I'm speaking today with George Webby, the John W. Colleton Chair in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Iowa School of Public Health. Dr. Webby co-authored the most read health affairs article in 2020. In that paper, Dr. Webby and co-author Wei Lu showed the value of state-level mask mandates in the early phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. More recently, in January of 2022, Dr. Webby and co-authors published two more papers in health affairs, one related to children's educational attainment and the other to racial and ethnic disparities in dental service use among lower-income adults receiving Medicaid. We'll discuss these topics and how health services research has changed during today's episode. Dr. Webby, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Alan. Great to be with you. It's such a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. I have to start with your 2020 face mask study. Not only was this the most read paper in 2020, but it had the highest altmetric score of any paper we've published. That is a term that may not be familiar to many, but the altmetric measure is one of uh, attention, how much attention a paper gets. And, And your paper was just off the charts. Uh, So it was a great victory for us, but of course reflects primarily your effort. So I'd like you to take us back to that time. Tell us, how did you identify this as a subject of study? How do you pull it together so quickly at the beginning of the pandemic? Just give us a sense of what was going through your mind at the time. Yeah, so we were living through the pandemic, you know, the beginning of it at that time. And uh, being health policy researchers, uh, you know, we were naturally attracted to uh, consider and look at policies that were at that time being, you know, put forward by states, by different, you know, authorities and governments. And the mask mandates was particularly interesting to us because there was a bit of a kind of uncertainty about it in the beginning, especially, and, you know, some kind of controversy uh, about, you know, the effectiveness and, you know, whether it should be mandated or not and such. And so, We had been reading the literature and the news about this topic, and it caught our attention that there had been increasing calls to look beyond just the, you know, the lab-based studies and the clinical studies that had been done up to that time and on different diseases. Not most of them weren't really COVID-related. So uh, we were, uh, you know, following the policy changes and and realized that there had already been some change at the state level with uh, some of these mandates. And, uh, you know, kind of a few weeks had passed, so we didn't have a very long window to really look at this. Uh, And, uh, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my co-author, Wei Lu, about this. Uh, We work really great together as a team, and and he deserves a lot of credit on this work. 
And so some of our discussions was, you know, that this is a, a respiratory disease. It kind of deserves, a, you know, a more uh, kind of, uh, I think, uh, you know, robust look at, at masks and kind of the, the, the natural, the real world, the policy, uh, you know, world. So we started the work, the data to, to kind of to a large extent was available. Uh, you know, it, it took a lot of hard work and, and I'll, I'll say uh, several overnights uh, to really be able to pull it together that quickly. But yeah, we were, were satisfied with how it came out. I want to focus on a couple of aspects here. So first of all, a pandemic comes and most people think about clinical medicine. They think about the disease and the treatment of the disease. Um, here you're talking about a public health measure. So give us a sense of how you think differently about looking at something, a policy that's applied to the population, uh, distinctly from sort of the, the, the science, if you will, of the disease and its transmission? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, the, the, the context of the policy is, is that you are trying to find an effect that is kind of uh, the average effect. Like it's kind of been, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, shaped by a lot of different behaviors in the population. And you really can't measure all of those individually, at least not in the data that we had. So we're trying to kind of find, you know, all the possible effects all kind of summed into one estimate, if you like. But it's really a highly relevant estimate at the end of the day, because it's telling us on average, what has this policy in that, you know, window that we investigated, what has it done uh, to, to this measure of, of COVID transmission? Uh, and so you're right. I mean, it's a policy uh, examination, but but there are also lots of other variables happening that that kind of always, uh, you know, make such uh, evaluations uh, interesting, but also challenging. And so you kind of have to consider as as many of these, uh, you know, other policies as you can while while you're studying that that sort of question. You know, you sort of anticipated my second question, which is, with the data you have, particularly that early. There's so many questions you can't answer. So you put in a mask mandate, and there are compliance issues. There's the effectiveness of the mask. There's uh, how long it takes to show an effect. And you can't really measure the what's happening inside the black box of the mandate. You're just looking at sort of the beginning point and the end point. And intellectually, maybe that doesn't seem very satisfying, but in fact, it it is the real world where we often don't know why something works, but we have to figure out if it does. So how did you conceptualize what endpoint you felt like you could measure, even though there were uh, mechanisms here that you, that you couldn't? Right. Um, you know, the, the endpoint was, was kind of the one that was at that point most policy relevant, which is, are there changes in the, you know, the growth rate of COVID, the daily growth rates? Uh, in, in that particular phase of the pandemic. And what what we kind of measured is, and uh, to use a bit of jargon, is kind of like the intent to treat policy. Like, you know, on average, was there an effect? Uh, but, but you're right, there are a lot of things in the black box. And some studies, uh, you know, several studies came out later that found associations between mask mandates and compliance. Uh, it's still, uh, you know, debatable. And uh, every day there is kind of new talk about what type of mask is most effective and such. So I, I agree. I mean, there's going to be a lot of, I think, questions following this. But I think all of that kind of put together 
in you know in in this kind of endpoint was there an effect on this endpoint and so we try to at least to get to that effect you know account for as many of the things that we could measure at that time like some of the you know the shelter in place orders the school closures essential business uh, you know closures emergency declarations uh, quarantine policies and, and and things like that so you kind of try what you can but recognizing at the end that yes there there, there is a, still some uncertainty about how this effect is shaping up and, uh, you know, possibly also some some confounding still at play. I mean, you can never rule these things out. So I'm not going to walk through all of your scholarship, but I do want to go through a few different studies, particularly ones you've published with us, because they get at the breadth of your interest. Uh, just in January, we published a paper on the educational effects of the coverage expansions associated with the Affordable Care Act. This is a totally different topic than uh, mask mandates. Tell me a little bit about what the paper found and what drew you to this subject. So this study looked at whether there are any effects from the Affordable Care Act expansions that began in 2014. So primarily the Medicaid expansions and the establishment of the marketplaces, whether there are any effects on uh, children's academic achievement. And so the kind of the conceptual links are that the Medicaid expansions have brought financial security to households, that they've improved access to health care and some evidence on improvement in parental health, and even some spillover effects on children's take-up of coverage, even though children were already covered at, at higher rates, but because of, of these kind of uh, you know, welcome mat uh, effects uh, on, on households. And, and so th there is a literature, of course, a vast literature on effects of income uh, changes in, in low-income households and on children's academic achievement, but there is less evidence on the role of insurance and insurance not just for children themselves, but for members of the household. And so the Affordable Care Act presented this opportunity to look at this question. Uh, the, the study evaluated uh, changes in uh, school test scores in Iowa, looking pretty much at the population of, of students in, in Iowa, focused on uh, households that are more likely to be low income through, through a measure of parental education we had in the data. And so what we found, and, and so we, we had two uh, uh, measures of uh, test scores, one for math, one for reading. Uh, we found uh, that the expansions were associated with improvement in reading scores after about two years had passed. So in the last two years of, of our uh, evaluation, with, which went through uh, school years 2017 and 2018, uh, we didn't find this evidence for math. Uh, and and th this kind of was generally consistent with a couple other studies that have looked at, at this question in other contexts as well. Uh, what, what drew me to it is, uh, you know, I've, I've always been interested in children's health and children's development as a as kind of an outcome. I've done several studies on, on uh, you know, children in, in kind of that, that research area. And I've also been doing work on the Affordable Care Act, primarily the Medicaid expansions, looking at changes in access and, and health outcomes and such. Uh, at the same time, I've also actually looked at some of the income changing policies like the minimum wage and children's health. So it's, I found like this to be an intersection, to be honest, between these different topics and kind of uh, you know, felt like really drawn to pursue this topic. In some small way, a commonality with the COVID work is that, the, again, the mechanism here 
is complex and very difficult to measure. You suggested some hypotheses about why insurance coverage expansion would improve academic achievement, but you couldn't measure those intermediate steps. But you made very uh, good use of of state-level data to look at an outcome that's of great interest. So that, I suppose, in some respects, reflects a similar approach to the mask mandate, where you're trying to understand the overall effect of a policy, even if the precise way that it works is is difficult to measure. You're right. And in this particular case, kind of the evidence on the mechanism is, is, is kind of put forward in pieces, though, by previous studies. So like I said, there is already evidence of increased financial security in households. There's already evidence of that having an effect on you know, children's outcomes, children's health, ch- children's uh, achievement. So these pieces of the mechanisms, uh, I think, are supported. And we know much more about them in this literature than in like the mask uh, study in that particular case. But yeah, ideally, like you would want to be able to measure and test these mechanisms in, in the same data set. That, that you're that you're examining in in many cases that tends not to be the case uh, you know unfortunately just because of data issues but that's a great point that uh, when you can't measure the mechanism having an evidence base that gives the uh, mechanism face validity is is really a good starting point you're not just looking for a data match you're looking for something consistent with a hypothesis even if uh, you can't demonstrate the mechanism within your own data set. Well, this is a, it's great to get introduced to these couple of studies. We're going to talk about some of your other work and how your approach to health services research has changed. We'll do that after we take a short break. Racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. And yet racism, especially structural racism, remains understudied in healthcare research. The February issue of Health Affairs focuses on racism and health and will cover topics such as how racism damages health, measuring the health impacts of structural racism, and racial bias in digital health. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. George Webby about his health services research in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Before the break, we talked about a couple of areas of his research. I do want to bring up one more before we open up to some broader questions about changes in how you have approached your research. Um, You've published extensively on health policy in South America, not in health affairs, but I see it on your CV. Um, Tell us a little bit about your interest there and what are the most critical health policy topics that you're looking at in uh, South America? Yeah, my my interest uh, started really when I was a doctoral student. Uh, My dissertation was based on examining uh, use of prenatal care in uh, South American countries and effects uh, of that on infant health. And so I kept these collaborations and, and they grew in many ways. Uh, my interest and my work has uh, focused actually a lot on uh, kind of uh, some of the disparities in health outcomes, infant health outcomes, and uh, use of services and insurance uh, in, in uh, South American countries. 
there's really a lot of uh, you know opportunity, I think, to examine uh, health policy and more broadly, actually, public policy and economic policy uh, in in South America, particularly social determinants of health. Of course, health insurance is is very critical, and there's a lot of uh, differences and variations in in how it's designed and also delivery of healthcare across South American countries. Uh, but that also uh, kind of is only one piece of uh, really what goes into influencing people's health and well-being, particularly there because of uh, sometimes vast inequities and inequalities in social and economic resources and opportunities. So I'm right now, my work has kind of uh, moved to focus more on, on these uh, kind of uh, public policy influences on health. I'm collaborating with uh, researchers from Colombia on the minimum wage, the role of the minimum wage uh, as a kind of a policy, uh, its effects on uh, children's health, and we're going to look at broader effects uh, on population health as well. Well, you've described a very broad range of interests, and uh, your scholarship reaches into all of those areas. Um, How would you tell me what the inspiration is for the focus uh, that you have? How did you come to these areas of focus? Yeah, I I mean, you know, as a a researcher uh, in uh, health policy, uh, health economics, healthcare outcomes, it's kind of uh, difficult sometimes to not consider all of these kinds of influences. Uh, of course, not in the same paper, but you recognize, let's say you, you research insurance in one or two papers, and you recognize, again, that that's only you know one path and sometimes a small path to looking and influencing at the outcomes that, that you're interested in. Uh, so naturally, you begin to consider you know, what other policies or what other pathways or what other issues can my research address. Uh, and so I've always been open to this uh, you know, kind of multiplicity of research ideas and pathways that you could pursue. And, and fortunately, in many cases, you, know, you, you, you could use the same data sets that you work on. So there is a little commonality in terms of the data. Uh, that that you are using, and and that kind of facilitates sometimes considering multiple research questions. Uh, but I've kind of always uh, been interested in covering as much as I can, you know, given my training, my you know experience with methods and knowledge of the literature, to cover as many of these different pathways as possible that lead to you know the the health outcomes that I'm interested in. So it's very interesting. You know, I speak to a lot of people who work with a data set, and they get some answers out of it and it gets them really intrigued in the data and they try to go deeper and deeper into what they can get from that one or set of data sets. And you're describing a somewhat different process where you answer a question and it leads to additional questions that require you to go elsewhere and to explore new sources of information so that you can answer those questions. And then in order to answer the ones that arise from there, you you continue to build outward as opposed to just going deeper into to one area. And both of them are very valid ways to expand your research. Uh, um, but it's just interesting to hear uh, the way you characterize that. You've also, in just in the papers we've published, employed a variety of methods. And I, I was really drawn to the educational uh, study because you, you're 
looking at at an educational outcome, and of course, in a in a journal like Health Affairs, we're usually looking at healthcare outcomes. Um, you also could only do it at, in one state because of the nature of the data, and some people might question uh, how generalizable it is. But it's also the sort of study that really can't be done on a national basis. Um, can you talk just a little more about your choice of data and, and particularly methods uh, on that paper, and maybe others if you'd like to as well? Yeah, so you know, in, in uh, I think a, a broader point, the the methods choice is kind of driven by the question, and then of course it's influenced by the data that that is available. Uh, in in this particular case, uh, you know, there was uh, clearly a, a need to try to put something kind of closer to the causal uh, inference uh, world. Like I you know, I wouldn't say like this is you know, 100% like the, the you know, the full effect that applies to everyone, right? I mean, there is uncertainty still in the results, but the idea was to go a little bit beyond just like a correlation or just looking at like, you know, these two just in a kind of a, a simple basic analysis. And so the, the study takes advantage of the, of the kind of extensive variation in the uninsured rate across geographic areas, counties in this case, in Iowa before these expansions of the Affordable Care Act uh, and so the idea is that there would be a larger effect of these expansions in areas that had more to benefit because they had uh, higher uninsured rates before the expansions. And so I'll also note that this kind of design had already been done before with studies in Massachusetts, for example, with their you know initial healthcare reform before the ACA and and in other settings as well. So it does offer an opportunity to to kind of say something and and about uh, you know the effect after controlling for a lot of the you know time events that are shared across uh, across these areas and so you're right in in this particular case kind of external validity the generalizability of results might be weakened of course by using one state particularly because you know the sample uh, you know the diversity of the sample isn't necessarily representative of the larger uh, you know population or of other states uh, but I think we have, uh, you know, evidence that I think could point to to effects that might apply in other settings. Like there isn't something, you know, on the surface that suggests like this effect is only specific to the state and shouldn't like generalize some some other places. So in, in kind of my, my research overall, I, I, I try when I can to to kind of account for confounding and get closer to this kind of causal estimate. Again, recognizing that there are still threats in any such analysis. You just try to kind of weed it out as, as much as you can and, and understand what effects it might have on the results. We've talked a lot about research you've published. I wonder if you could tell us a little about what you're working on now. Yeah, so I am uh, working on uh, actually uh, kind of one area that I've been uh, working on getting the data set up for that for, for a while. It's really interplays between children's health and their academic achievement. Uh, and that kind of relates a little bit to the to the uh, paper we've been talking about on insurance, uh, but this is more uh, trying to get at particular uh, changes in access to uh, health services, including dental care among children early in their life. How does that relate uh, to uh, long-term outcomes like academic achievement? So I've been uh, you know working on linkages of different data sets, Medicaid data, birth certificates, and educational test data to try to answer some of these questions. So that's that's one particular area that I'm working on. 
Uh, I still have work on uh, these income support policies like uh, the minimum wage, uh, looking at the effects uh, on children and still some studies uh, happening on the Affordable Care Act as well. I think when a lot of people go into health services research, they hope that they'll affect public policy and improve it and improve population health. Uh, You have done that uh, through your work. And for someone who's trying to learn from what you've done, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them around uh, whether it's topical areas or you're uh, working with the media as your paper became uh, uh, widely known? What, what, What would you say? Yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, what, one thing that I'll probably uh, start with is, uh, you know, choosing the idea. And of course, people uh, choose their research ideas in different ways. Uh, but, but one thing that I'll say is, uh, you know, don't be afraid to go after the harder idea sometimes, the higher impact idea, uh, the one that might seem like, you know, m- more policy relevant, more impactful and, and, and has more significance even though it might require perhaps a little bit more challenges in, you know, data access or, or you know, framing the design and, and, and so on. So, so uh, you know, uh, spend a, a quite a bit of time uh, thinking about the research question before jumping into the analysis and, and the data uh, work. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is, uh, you know, of course, like, uh, you know, read a lot the literature, the, you know, the news uh, you know, just the, the, the daily news uh, focused on health and, and health policy, because a lot of ideas come from there. And, you know, just be be humble about your findings and, and about your work, because, uh, you know, we all know that in, uh, you know, in all kinds of research, particularly social, social science research, you know, there is still more of the uncertainties that we open with you know, talking about and, and just kind of be, you know, be, be really transparent and just clear about what the, your results say and what they don't say. Uh, and yeah, just be open to criticism and, and pushing back. And that's, you know, that's how we improve research and, and science going forward. Well, those are such great pieces of advice. I think we should uh, wrap it here because I don't know that uh, there's more that you could say. I appreciate uh, the advice around humility but as we close, I just have to ask, what did it feel like as the attention to the face mask paper uh, grew and there were more inquiries about its findings? What what was your reaction at that point? Yeah, I think it was a mix of uh, excitement and, you know, kind of a feeling of, uh, you know, having done something relevant that people are paying attention to and perhaps they're finding it useful uh, at the same time, it was stressful a little bit yeah, to to get you know kind of a lot of attention and 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 you know news requests and and uh, and such. Uh, but but I think you know I approached it with with that kind of feeling that I spoke about. You know, just being really transparent and uh, and I think that helped. And uh, you know, I think uh, that that's kind of my you know general approach with 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 this kind of uh, attention. But yeah, it was overwhelming a little bit at at the beginning. Well, Dr. Wavy, thank you for uh, the work you've done, the, the opportunity for us at Health Affairs to publish your work, and uh, for being my guest today on a Health Policy. Thank you very much, Alan. It was great speaking with you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy. Mm-hmm.
Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.